0: So, we're going to back in this morning to our uh, series on generosity. If you're new here this morning, uh, my name is Brent Smith, and uh, we're certainly welcome, uh, certainly thankful that you're here with us this morning. As we said two weeks ago, uh, at the mention of a sermon on money, we're already somewhat uneasy. We're already kind of apprehensive about what we might be talking about this morning, but that's okay. We gave you a week off last week with Mother's Day and kind of took a different direction just to fool you and bring you back here so you'd forget what our series was about, and it worked, and now you're back, and we'll do it again next week at the weekend away. (laughs) But it's difficult uh, sometimes to talk about money, and as we said Uh, dealing with issues about money is dealing with issues about trust, dealing with issues about control, identity, acceptance, and we had that illustration about uh, ripping the hair out by the roots. It can be painful, uh, but the result is beautiful, okay? So we're going to continue to talk about money this morning. You're uneasy, and that's okay. Uh, So let's pray, and uh, we'll continue to ask God to do Uh, a greater work in our lives through this series, okay? So, Father, we are uh, thankful for Your presence here with us. We're thankful for Your Word that we can uh, dig into and be challenged and be changed by Your Spirit. And uh, we just pray that You would do that this morning. We don't want to just be hearers of Your Word. We want to be doers as well. And so we pray, Father, that You'd come meet with us as we go through Your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we jump in this week, I just want to remind you of uh, what we looked at two weeks ago, which is really our our foundation for generosity, which is the richness and the generosity of God Himself. And sometimes through our experiences in life or whatever, we begin to think that maybe God is poor, that He's stingy, that He's a, a coupon clipper, that He doesn't want to give anything away, but the reality is, is that God is a rich and generous God. We are saved by a generous God to be a generous people. He's rich in glory. He's rich in grace. He's rich in mercy. He's rich in kindness and patience. He's rich in steadfast love and faithfulness in the Trinity. He is rich relationally. We said that every box you would want to be rich in, He checks that box. And not only is He rich, He's generous and He continually gives of Himself. We talked about Him giving us just the unbelievable amount in just His common grace from the sights and the sounds and the smells and the tastes that we experience every day uh, to His goodness with everything, with our families. And on top of that, I stumbled across this verse the other day. Let this just Just blow your mind in thinking about the generosity of God. It says that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if you've heard that one before. (laughs) Maybe you've heard it too much. And from there... He just continually, eternally, abundantly gives to His children. And that's the rock that we stand on. And so any talk about our generosity has to be built on the foundation that we have a rich and generous God. So, from there, as you can see, this morning's title is The Fool's Gold, How to Be Foolish About Money. And we're going to look at Luke 12. Uh, where Jesus talks about the parable of the rich fool. And we probably uh, all struggle with some of these. We're going to look at four ways we can be foolish about money. We probably all struggle with uh, some of them to varying degrees. But when we are foolish about our money and foolish concerning money, then our generosity suffers. And so the way that we handle our money uh, will give proof to these things. We might not verbalize it, we might not consciously think it, but when we look at how we handle our money, some of these things might be very evident and more than we'd like to think. So let's open our Bibles to Luke 12. And we'll begin in verse 13. Luke 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, that's Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetedness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So just to notice, when you go through the parables of Jesus, and specifically the ones that address money, in your heart, your heart is probably going to want to throw in what I would call some yeah buts, okay? Your heart is going to want to do a few yeah buts even this morning, probably, as we look at this parable, that, well, yeah but, yeah but, yeah but, right? So be careful of the yeah buts. This morning, do Elmer Fudd and kill the Abbots. <laughs> uh, uh, but honestly, your heart is going to want to put up some defenses and look for some way to get out of the weight of what Jesus is going to say to you about money. It's going to look for a way out. This morning, we just need to sit under the weight of God's word. We need to sit under the weight of what Jesus is going to say about money and just let it rest on us and let it change us. You're not going to be changed by trying to find a way out to squirm out from underneath it, okay? So the scene from the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of 12, thousands and thousands of people have gathered to Jesus. They've heard to hear Jesus speak in amongst the crowd. uh, You read that there's some Pharisees looking to try to catch him in something that they don't agree with. Um, So there's a big crowd, they're there not to learn or be encouraged, they're just lying in wait, it says, and Jesus is preaching about worrying, not fearing, God doesn't forget about sparrows, He's not going to forget about you, He's giving you His Holy Spirit to help you be His witness, That's, that's the message that's going out, but it all seems to go over one guy's head, because as we read in verse 13, Jesus maybe paused for a minute, this guy breaks through the crowd, and he yells out, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus' teachings weren't getting through because this guy had one thing on the brain, which was money, money, money. So he wants Jesus to help him settle his issue with his brother over the inheritance. And Deuteronomy 21 gives instructions on the inheritance, says that the firstborn was to get a double portion, so maybe. He was the younger brother, and that didn't really jive well with him, and he wanted it split down the middle. Maybe his older brother was cheating him out of some inheritance, whatever it was. He's coming to Jesus um, to try to get it settled, and we can all probably relate. We see many examples of that even today. Nothing really reveals the greed in our heart than when there's free money to be split up, right? And we see instances where families are divided over the mother's spoon collection or the cherry wood end table, all those foolish things, and families can just break up. Free money does a crazy thing to people. Whatever the situation was, this guy brings it to Jesus, and he's not asking to make a fair judgment. He's asking Jesus to bring the squabble into his favor, okay? He's not saying, Jesus, look at this situation, and I want you to judge fairly. He's saying, Jesus, here's the situation. Work it so I get mine, is basically what he's saying. And like many have sadly done through church history and still do today, he wants to use Jesus for monetary gain. He wants to use Jesus to get uh, his riches, and so that's really our first way to be a fool about money is to try to use Jesus to gain it. To try to use Jesus to gain our money. So this guy comes to Jesus not for teaching, not for salvation, not for life, but just try to cash in. And many have followed him. They look to Jesus not for Jesus and not for his presence and for his relationship, but as an avenue to material Wealth, work this in my favor so I can get rich, Jesus. And the folly is in elevating the gifts over the giver who gives the gifts. And so we approach God and relate to God as if he's a pinata and our obedience is the stick okay and so we say well i'll pray this prayer and i'll read this and i'll do this and i'll serve on kids church and i'll help out with the sandwich run thinking that's the big stick that will just burst god open and get the things that we actually came to the party for which are the candy the money the treasure the riches the pinata gets thrown to the side and no kid gives a flying flip about that pinata they all came for the candy And when we come to Jesus, not for him and not for his presence, but for the gifts that he gives, then Jesus becomes like the smashed up pinata in the corner that we don't care about as we all stampede to the gifts. There's a big difference between having a generous father and having a genie in the sky that you think is going to grant your every wish. God is a rich and generous God who pours out His infinite love and wisdom and grace and mercy and kindness and patience to His children for our good. And He's promised to meet our daily bread. He's promised that we will have mercy and find grace in our time of need. But He's not our ticket to a prosperous, successful, material wealth life here on earth. So two weeks ago, Uh, We had a great discussion about this at our life group, uh, just talking about because God is rich and generous when we give beyond our means, when we tithe, when it doesn't look like the money will be there for the other things at the end of the week, we can trust Him to take care of us because He's a rich and generous Father. Seeing God as our generous Father unlocks our generosity Seeing God as a genie in the sky only feeds our selfishness. We need to see God as our generous Father and not as some Santa God that just fills our list as we check off all His good things that we need to do. Jesus didn't promise us prosperity. In fact, He promised us trouble. He promised that the world would hate us, but He did promise never to leave us Or forsake us we come to Jesus for Jesus whom have I in heaven beside you and there's nothing on earth I decide I desire beside you my heart and my flesh my bank account may fail but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever as a deer pants for flowing streams so my soul pants for you my soul thirsts for God not for money not for success, my soul thirsts for the living God. We need to come to Jesus for Jesus. And we see when Jesus comes, when this guy comes to Jesus in this way, Jesus isn't having it. He just tosses the whole thing aside. Uh, he knows he has a greater purpose, a greater mission. Uh, one commentary I read said Jesus came to bring men to God, not property. To man. He knew what his calling was. He knew what reason the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord was upon him. Plus, Jesus could see the deeper issue affecting this man's life. He could see the hold that money had on him. So, Jesus goes right for the heart of the issue. And we see in this parable and in many others that Jesus is quite uh, ruthless in addressing the matters that are a lot more important than dividing an earthly inheritance down the middle. And so we get to the parable of the rich fool, and he tells a story about a guy who built, had big barns full of grain, got more grain, so he tore down those barns, built bigger ones, and said to himself, Now I can relax, I can eat, I can drink, and I can be merry. <clears throat> and so that's where we see our second folly, And if there's a lie we've sunk our teeth into the most is probably this one. It's that my money is mine to be used for me, to bring me enjoyment, to bring me pleasure, to bring me satisfaction, to bring me security. And money really is my toy to play with and make me happy. I'll turn my money into bigger barns, nicer cars, granite countertops, iPads, iPhones, dresses, shoes, watches, jewelry, I'll turn my money into whatever I want and do with it whatever I want to make me happy, to make me, to bring me some enjoyment. So I can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, we are meant to enjoy what we have, and there's nothing wrong with that. And the other thing is, God doesn't give us a list of acceptable and unacceptable purchases. God gives us some pretty clear principles in His Word. We know we need to provide for our families. We know we need to give to the poor, but we're still left with a lot of questions when we look at our money and what God wants us to do with it. Is it okay to own a house? If so, what kind of house? Is it okay to buy a new car? Or should I just buy a 98 Cavalier off of Kijiji? I had a Cavalier once. Nothing against Cavaliers. I'm just saying. Right? Should I own two cars? Is it okay to go on a $500 vacation? What about a $5,000 vacation? Can I take my wife out and have a $60 meal? Is that okay? Or is it okay to have a $160 meal? Those are questions that every Christian should probably process and think through, but there's no clear right or wrong in the Bible. God doesn't give us a budget list from the sky for every Christian when they're saved. But he does give us a warning if we desire more money and more things so that we can have ample goods laid up for many years and relax and eat and drink and be merry, using our money mainly for ourselves and our enjoyment, then we are fools. That's the warning that he gives us through this parable. And it's what our society mainly feeds on, mainly lives off of. Go to the next slide. There's the ad for Peter Roberts that they're currently using, the downtown uh, shop for men feeling empty, question mark, shop. If you're feeling empty, buy a suit, because that will help. This is the motto of the person who has bought into the lie that their money is mainly for them to bring them happiness my empty life will be filled when I fill it with more things. And so we pile up stuff and stuff and stuff, thinking that money and the things we buy with money will make us happy. But look at what Jesus said in verse 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Your life is not what you own, whether you own a little. For a lot, your life does not consist with what you can hold in your hand and polish and display and cherish. Your life is more than your possessions. Your arms could be loaded down with suits from Peter Roberts, and you can walk out of that store with a life just as empty as when you went in. The God of materialism never keeps His promises. And if you say, well, I don't have to worry about this, I don't have any money. I'm not tearing down my barns and building bigger barns. I don't even have a barn. I have one of those Canadian Tire steel sheds and the door stopped sliding 10 years ago, right? It doesn't matter if you have a lot or you have a little, you can still be foolish about your money in this way. And that's why Jesus said, take care and be on your guard against all covetedness. We can all take the bait that money is for us and our enjoyment even if we don't have very much. Covetedness is being preoccupied with what we don't have, having a passion to possess what is not ours. And so if we're Not rich, but we spend our days looking across the street at our neighbor who bought a new car, reading the magazines in the grocery store, and desiring and wishing we had a life that's not ours and coveting the things that God has not given us, then we're just as much a fool as the guy who has them and is empty. So if you're the guy with the collapsing shed looking across the street at this guy building bigger barns, and you're wishing, boys, I wish it was me building those bigger barns, then I'd be able to eat, drink, relax, and be merry. You're just as much a fool as that guy. It's not about the amount, it's about the attitude that we have. Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer, which is another way of saying take care and be on guard against all covetedness. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. We need to see that ultimately money is not a toy to be used for our enjoyment, but a tool to be used for God's glory. Here's another quote by a famous person. It says, Since money is a tool that God gives us, there is an expectation on our end that we will spend it the way He wants. Adam Langell. He's not even here to enjoy it. Since money is a tool that God gives us, there is an expectation on our end that we need to spend it in a way He wants. God is generous with us so that we might glorify Him with what He's given us, including our money. Whether you eat or drink or spend or give or save or do whatever you do, do all for the glory of God and it's not about commands it's not about you must you must you must it's about seeing that money isn't our treasure God is our treasure and then giving cheerfully from that the rich fool saw his money and his prosperity mainly for himself and when you read in the parable six times in a few short sentences he says I five times my it's all about him with no concern for anyone else just think of the good that he could have done with all that grain. Why tear down the barns and build bigger barns so that you can be rich and be merry and relax? Think of all the people around him that could have used that grain. It wasn't that he had a lot of grain, it's that he kept it all for himself, for his own enjoyment. What good he could have brought to the needy and what glory to God. Compare his life to that of John Wesley. John Wesley started the, the Methodist Church, and early on in his life, he cut his spending back and saw that he could live off of 28 pounds, and he was making 30 pounds a year, so he gave two pounds away. The next year, his income went up to 60, but he kept his, uh, what he knew what he could live off of for a year at 28 pounds, and so that year, he was able to give away 32 pounds. The next year it went up to 90 pounds, but he stayed at 28 pounds and he was able to give away 62 pounds. At one point in John Wesley's life, his annual income was 1,400 pounds a year and he rarely went above spending 28 pounds for him to live. Over the course of his life, he gave away almost 30,000 pounds. The British government thought he was up to no good, they actually investigated him to see what was going on. To the British government, he was a fool. We look at, uh, the world looks at the rich man in Jesus' parable, and they see him as a success to be envied, and they look at John Wesley as a, pool, as a fool to be pitied, and God sees them the other way. Around And as we look at that back in April, the resurrection flips all those things around. <clears throat> God prospered both men. One used his money for his own pleasure, and the other used it for the good of those around him and the glory of God. <clears throat> On the other side of that way to be a fool with money, sometimes... We hear that, and we run from one folly to another. And so the third way to be a fool with your money is to see it as evil, is to see it as something to be uh, run from, something to shun. We know that accumulating treasure is bad, and so we just run from it, singing Puff Daddy, Mo Money, Mo Problems, and we don't want it, get it out of my life, Right? No good can come from it. And maybe sometime in your Christian life, you've thought, you know, you just read some things that Jesus says and you, says, you say, you know, maybe I should sell off everything that I own and just live in intentional poverty. Maybe I'm alone. But sometimes it goes through your head. You just think, man, maybe I should just, maybe the monks got it right and we'll just sell off everything and live in intentional poverty poverty. It's what we see in the lives of, say, St. Francis of Assisi. Him and his disciples saw money as so evil they refused to even touch it. They weren't even allowed to touch it. St. Francis of Assisi said it should be shunned as if the devil himself. That's how they viewed money. A more subtle form that is popular today is minimalism. The less you have, the better you are. And you know, you can, if it isn't essential, you shouldn't have it, which is, works out really good for the mentalist because then they can decide what is essential as they sit in Starbucks with their MacBook and write it on their blog. Ho! Oh. <laughs> I'm not saying, I'm just saying. If we have money, we need to take seriously Jesus' statements like in Luke 18 when he says how hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We need to take those things seriously, especially if we're rich and well off. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But seeing money as evil and something to avoid and run from is just as foolish as the other views. Notice that Jesus says nothing negative about the man's prosperity. God calls him a fool, not because he's rich, but because of what he does with his riches. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is a root of all kind of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It isn't money that's evil. It's money love that is evil and can cause you to walk away from your faith and bring you a lot of pain. Money by itself is morally neutral. People are not, right? So money is like many other things in the world. We can all sit around a campfire, and we can roast marshmallows, and we can have a great time building community together, and the fire is good. And arson can take fire and burn down a whole community, and fire is bad. But it's not the fire, it's whose hands it's in. I don't want fire in my hands, but it's not money that's the problem. It's the person with the money. So if you feel that this isn't you, that you're not foolish about money in this way, well, I don't see it as evil. You know, the question to ask yourself here is, how quick are we to condemn a Christian who has a house that's bigger than ours? or goes on trips that we don't, or spends money on things that we would never spend money on or has a nicer car than we do. How quick are we to set up our standard of living as the measuring stick, and anyone living above that is then not as spiritual as we are? Is our standard of living the standard, and anyone above it is gone into sin? In the same way, A huge barn full of grain could be used to store food for the entire village. A huge house can be just a display to impress the neighbors, or it can be a place to bring in lots of people for hospitality and generosity and kindness, and not just be a display case of material wealth, but be a display case of the generosity and the love of God to your community. A big screen TV, a sporting event. And lots of food can be a great way to become better friends with your neighbor. (laughs) A hot tub can be used for baptism, (laughs) right? As Christians, we shouldn't love money, but we don't need to run from it either. Jesus doesn't rail against the rich fool for prospering. He calls him a fool for what he did with his prosperity, which was mainly to look after number one. Being a fool with your money isn't about the amount, it's about the attitude. And the last thing that we can be fools about money is that we can think God isn't concerned about it at all, which is really the foundation that the others are probably built off of and it's probably the greatest way that we can think wrongly about money is that god isn't concerned with it at all it's to separate money from the other things in your life i came across this quote at the bottom you know sometimes articles have the page at the bottom where you can comment on them i came across this comment on an article i read and it said I tend to stick with things I can do. That way I can be a little more sure that what little money I do have is not being wasted. But I still maintain that God doesn't care about my money. Actions will do just as well because that's what I have to give. So when we've bought into this lie that God isn't concerned with my money, what he's concerned about is my time, my service, and things like that. We say things like giving and being generous is about more than money. You guys shouldn't be focused on money because being generous is about my whole life. It's about my service. It's about my time. And some of us just can't afford to be generous with their money. But what I can be is I can help out in Kids Church or I can help out with Move Team or I can help out here and I can help out there. And I consider that to be my giving. That's how I can be generous. Now, it's right to think that giving and being generous is about more than just money. We do need to be generous with our time. We need to be generous with our homes and what we have. We need to be generous with our talents and our service. But trying to replace being generous with our money with being generous with things that we should already be generous with doesn't work. And you see the folly of it when you flip it on its head and the person says, well, sorry, Jody, I don't have to help out in kids' church. I tithe. Sorry, I don't care about the sandwich run. I give $200 a week. I don't have to do a thing. I can just sit here, and as long as I put my envelope in the basket, that's like my exemption note from all ta- types of service. Right? That's what it is flipped on its head, and both ideas are False. If we think that God is more concerned with how we give our time than how we spend our money, we need a bigger view of God because the truth is God is big enough to care about both. God's big enough to care about what you do with your money and He still has the focus and the attention to be concerned with what you're doing about your time. He's big enough to be concerned about both areas of our lives. In this parable, And in many other parables that Jesus taught, God is concerned with what we do with our money. He's concerned a lot. God calls the guy a fool solely because of the way he used his money. God looks at the way that he used his money and he says, fool, tonight your life will be required of you. A fool in Psalms and Proverbs is a guy who lives like there's no God. So, this man was spending his money as if God didn't care, in fact, as if God didn't exist. He might have been a devout Jew, he might have been a religious man who prayed and went to the synagogue, but the way he handled his money showed that he really believed that God didn't exist. He was a fool. On the flip side, flip over a few pages to Luke 19. In Luke 19, we see the flip side of what happened here to the rich fool. In Luke 19, Jesus goes to the house of a tax collector named Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus experiences the love and the forgiveness of a generous God. And he says in verse 7, or verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't take him through a foundations book. He didn't take him through a 12-week discipleship course based solely on how he handled his money and his response to money. Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. Just looking at how he was generous now with his money, that his hand, so tightly gripped on money, had been loosened because of the generosity and the forgiveness and the love of God, Jesus looked at him and without a doubt, without question, said, Salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus was saved by a generous God, and he became a generous person. He wasn't saved because he was generous. He met with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. We don't know what the conversation was but he saw something of the love and the generosity and the forgiveness of God, and he stood up, he repented of his sin, and he was a generous man. We put in our membership handbook, there's nothing as unchristian as a solitary Christian, Well, there's nothing as unchristian as a stingy Christian. When we see the generosity and the love that God has poured out on us, we should be overflowing with generosity to those around us. When we look at Zacchaeus, when we look at the rich guy who built bigger barns, looking just at their attitudes and actions with money, Jesus pronounced one man a fool and the other a child of God. He is concerned with what we do with our money, so it should be our utmost concern not to be fools with the money that he's given us. And when I look at these texts, The question I ask myself this week and the question that you should ask yourself is that when Jesus looks at my money and he is looking, would he declare me a fool or would he say salvation has come to this house? Would he call you a fool or would he say salvation has come to this house? And if you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, and maybe your life does look more like the rich fool, you need to know that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. And maybe like Zacchaeus, you just need to lay it all before him this morning. Receive the generous love and forgiveness and grace and mercy of the Father. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus and know his generosity and his love in a way That you've never known before. Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. We are saved by a generous God to be a generous people. Though Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And if our lives are now richly filled with Jesus, how can we not then be generous? Let's pray. Father, we don't know how to appropriately relay back to You the love and the generosity and the grace that You've shown us. But it's our desire in our heart not to be the rich fool, spending our money that You have given us only on ourselves. Our desire is to be a people overflowing with generosity. To do that, we need Your Spirit. We need your help. We need you to pour your love into our hearts, and so we just ask, Father, that you would do that, that we would know more and more of your great love, your generosity, your forgiveness, what you've done for us, and we want to be changed by your word. We want you to say of us, of what you said of Zacchaeus, that salvation has come to our house. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, we pray that your spirit would be working on their lives. We want to see uh, them respond in the same way that Zacchaeus responded, that you have come to seek and save the lost, that they know that no matter what they've done in their past or how they've spent their money or what else they've done, you are standing ready and able to forgive and change them. And so we pray for that, Father. We pray for your presence. Continue to help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.